Hello and welcome to the Weekly Space Hangout for Wednesday, November 25th. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. This week, we're going to be talking about a fossil galaxy discovered deep within the Milky Way. The fight to save Arecibo and, and uh, Chang'e 5, not Chang'e 4, Chang'e 5, sets out to bring samples back from the moon. Joining me on my screen right now, i got Alan Versfeld. Alan, welcome back. Yeah, good to be here. And I've got, uh, let's see, Nika Klimovich. Nika. Hello. There we go. Okay. And we've got uh, Dr. Kimberly Cartier. Kimberly. Hey, Fraser. Happy podcast day, everyone. It's like music to my ears every time. Um, all right. Now, before we get on to this week's show, I just want to give a huge, gigantic reminder to everybody. If you enjoy the Weekly Space Hangout, but there are topics you want covered, guests you want us to bring onto the show, this is where we put the ball back in your court to join the Weekly Space Hangout crew, become one of the executive producers, and then you can have all of the reputation and clout in this industry to go out and uh, line up guests for the show. Did you see a paper and you want to know more about some mission? Did you Have you heard about some super celebrity astronomer that you want us to interview for you? Just join the Weekly Space Hangout crew and then we will put you to work to track down the person that you want interviewed. Go to wshcrew.space. All right. Uh, Kimberly, you're on my screen right now. Let's get into... Uh, the fight to save Arecibo. I guess, you know, we haven't deeply talked about what's happened with Arecibo on the show yet. So can you just give us the update? Right. So uh, some of you may have remembered back in August, a cable at the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico snapped and caused some damage to the 305 meter dish. We were all very sad and very heartbroken that there was damage to this dish Um, They shut the telescope down for repairs to do an engineering assessment of how to fix it, if it could be fixed. Um, And during this assessment, on November 6th, a second cable snapped. And it was the main cable on the same tower that the first cable snapped. Uh, And this was totally unexpected. The cable snapped at about 60% of the amount of stress it should have been able to handle. Uh, which set off some alarm bells mm-hmm. um, with all the two engineering teams that were doing the assessment of whether it could be repaired. Um, the cables seemed a lot weaker than they should have been. And they completed the assessment. And just a couple days ago, the National Science Foundation uh, basically came to the conclusion that it was that they could not safely repair the dish with the funds they had available. And so they recommended the 305 meter telescope for decommissioning, which is very, very, very sad. Yeah. So that's, that's the, what has happened so far. Um, And there, there are a lot of very sad and hurt feelings about this because it's an iconic telescope. It's been around for almost 60 years. It has done phenomenal science uh, and has been an icon and an inspiration to Puerto Rican scientists and and uh, students who want to become scientists for so long. Um, and so almost immediately after the announcement, there 
was a petition started by uh, supporters of the observatory to try and save the telescope, basically to petition the White House and Congress to reassess, get more funds there, try and save this icon. And um, what are their chances? I don't want to say their chances are slim. Um, I personally would love to see it saved. My name is on that petition Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. save it. Um, They need 100,000 signatures by the end of the month, and I think they're at about 18,000 right now. Oh, really? Okay, all right. Sorry, uh, within a month of when the petition started, not within till the end of November, which okay, is a couple days okay. from now. Sorry. But, um, right. But the point but, being, if you're listening to this and you want to save Arecibo, yes. sign... You still have some time. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think you can just Google save the Arecibo Observatory petition uh, and it's there. But if they get 100,000 signatures um, on this official White House petition, the White House uh, basically has to give them a response to oh, their request. Okay. Yes. Uh, it's one of those, if you reach a certain amount, they're, ha- they're compelled to reply to it. And they're also going to petition members of Congress, some of whom have been very, very supportive of Arecibo in the past. Um, Arecibo has gone through many cycles of people trying to shut it down or trying to pull funding or uh, basically like soft close it by, you know, decreasing funding so low that it's basically inoperable. Um, And it has been saved multiple times, but through massive public support, through support from individual universities and academics, um, yeah. And I, I think it, it wouldn't be the first time it has been saved from the chopping block. Yeah, I think that's I mean, that's my experience with this as well, which is like like we've covered for years on on Universe Today about how Arecibo has been on the chopping block and like a fully operational, yeah. no cable broken Arecibo have, mm-hmm. has still been a, um, a scientific instrument that people have said, uh you know, do we really need do it we really five million dollars a year for to run this thing? Couldn't we spend that on something else? And so it has been on the chopping block for a decade that I know of. And so to mm-hmm. then have this damage, I was amazed. I was actually really amazed that that they they started to commit. I think it was like ten and a half million dollars to start the repairs or at least to assess mm-hmm. and figure out and begin that that process and find out if it was going to make sense to actually do it. I was sure they were just going to throw in the towel right then, but then the next one happened, and now you're looking at tens of millions of dollars. But it's yeah. like it's a it's a it's a very dangerous place now. So yeah. who can sign this uh, uh, petition? Only everybody, Americans? anybody can. Anybody, that's good yes. news. <laughs> anybody and everybody who likes radio astronomy. Yeah, um, and did they it. mention how much money do they need to? I think part of the part of the trouble is they don't have a, a dollar amount to of, of what it would actually take to repair it because this, the second cable snapped so recently, and it has raised some serious concerns about the integrity of the rest of the cables that are supporting the telescope. Um, I think if it had just been the the one cable that had snapped, or even just the two cables that had snapped, but both at the capacity that was expected. Um, it'd be a pretty easy assessment to figure out, you know, how much it would take to replace those two cables. Um, but if all of the supporting cables are, uh, if we have doubts about how much stress they can actually handle during this repair process, um, that's where it gets complicated and hard to assess what it'll actually take to fix it. 
Right. So how much of a gap then does this leave us if it's gone uh, in what we could do before that isn't filled up by other existing telescopes like FAST or SKA and, 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 and so on? It does leave a gap, though not as much as it would have, say, 10 years ago, because there is the, you know, 500-meter telescope in China, mm. um, which does similar science in a similar part of the sky. Um, it has a wider field of view. And I think, Fraser, you just said that it's starting to be open to yeah, yeah. astronomers so, around the world. To yeah, so China has it, been, right? right, China has been, has been opening up the telescope for proposals from all nations to be able to do work on okay. the, on the instrument. So, so, so there, there is some overlap there. It would leave a significant gap in radio coverage for um, just U.S. and North American-based astronomers, um, because I think the next biggest radio telescope the U.S. has is Green Bank, right. if I'm not mistaken, mm. and that's 60 meters, <laughs> yeah. uh, as opposed to 305, <laughs> right. which is very mm. different. Um, so it, it would leave a significant gap here, and it's just it's basically like a 50% uh, reduction in our radio giant radio capacity in the world. Mm. So, I mean, there, <laughs> I mean, everyone's always strapped for observation time and this is the second largest radio telescope in the world. And then the other thing that Sondi, whenever she was on the show was always really glad to talk about was its capability as a radar instrument, really to send yes. out a, send out a beam, see the bounce coming back and use that to map out the shapes of asteroids that were, flying past the earth yeah uh it has done a tremendous amount of great science in rate in uh, radar mapping of asteroids um to you know mapping rotation rates and trajectories and finding things and pulsar science and i mean obviously you know so why they, did well, they but... but why they were trying to uh, close it like even earlier before the cable snapped <laughs> Like, what, where the reasoning if it's doing such a great job? Money, usually. <laughs> yeah. oh, okay. It's usually a money thing. Um, and the assessment of what it can bring to the table compared to other telescopes. I, and I don't want to say there's any prejudice against the fact that it's in Puerto Rico versus, um, like, one of the mainland states. I don't want to say there's prejudice there, but um, the fact of the matter is, is that Puerto Rico does not have any... Um, congressional representation to fight for it as well. Mm -hmm. That is part of it. Yeah. So it's like a, so. it's like a really nice natural sinkhole depression. It's got the right shape for the, for a, for a very large radio telescope. And so it was chosen as that site. But I think, as you say, it's not like, I mean, when you think about say the space launch system or James Webb, that, that these through the way the congressional system works, these, experiments, spacecraft, et cetera, have the funds doled out to every state pretty much. And, and it's sort of like a, it's a big circuit. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, I mean, if yeah. you compare, I, I'm, it's interesting you bring up SLS as, as well, because if you compare the amount of money, time, effort that has gone into making SLS work, and it hasn't yet compared to the time, money and effort needed to fix Arecibo, um, it, it doesn't compare SLS is way more expensive and time intensive. It would take way more resources, but it is being built in Alabama at a NASA center in Alabama, mm -hmm. um, whose Senator is, has a lot of power at, on a lot of committees um, compared to Puerto Rico yeah. who has, which has none of those things. Yep. But so 
So what? So then that is part of it. So how will things play out from this point forward then? So from this point forward, I have the teams of engineers are still assessing what it'll take to actually fix the telescope. Um, try and get some ballpark estimates of money if they even want to go that route. If the petition gets enough signatures, um, part of one of the one of the things they're asking for is a completely new engineering assessment um, from people who haven't looked at it before. Uh, and also the Army Corps of Engineers to take hmm. a second look at it. Um, so that's sort of, we're, we're sort of in a waiting game now. Um, NSF can't do all that much to decommission it right away because of the pandemic and just the amount of resources they have on hand. Um, yeah. It's a bit of a waiting game. I mean, it is kind of interesting, though, when you think about some of the budgets that are spent on some of these new telescopes. When you look at, say, the a European extremely large telescope, it's a billion dollar telescope. Now yeah. it's <laughs> going to directly observe extrasolar planets, um, but still, it's a billion dollars for twenty million dollars. They could refurbish and bring back online a world class thirty million, forty million. You know, like it. It does seem in uh, compare. Like if you could spend forty million dollars, fifty million dollars, and have. I know I, the number keeps going up every time I say this, but let's <laughs> you know, let's say it's some amount of millions of dollars. But it's almost like you you know how NASA and NSF. Yeah, work. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, what would you be willing to pay to have a world class observatory? Like it feels. Yeah. It feels and like I, it could be not just. Like it's it's weird. It's weird to me that such a powerful and important observatory has been let to go so badly. That yeah, and it can be doing such important science work. And in fact, it should be getting the kinds of upgrades that you see on other telescopes. They're like, oh, we put a new receiver. Oh, we upgraded the computer system. Oh, we've got, you know, we figured out a way to fine tune the I don't know the harmonics, whatever it is, to get um, it better. More powerful laser. Yeah, and I mean, we, we we're, we're talking a lot about you know the excellent science that it has produced and it can produce, but I, I feel like we can never understate you know just how much this telescope means to Puerto Ricans, and just the so the hundreds and thousands of scientists and students and educators that this has inspired. Yep. And you know all yeah. the kids who have gone to Space Academy there, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I you you cannot under undervalue this telescope. Uh, yeah, like like I mean, remember contact. Remember contact. Yeah. Anyway, if yeah. you're on Twitter, uh, I highly recommend going to the hashtag what Arecibo means to me. Um, I've spent many an hour there. Oh, that's um, wonderful. Just basically crying my eyes out. Oh, yeah. Um, Shannon Sterone uh, wrote a great article on Slate this week about her thoughts about the about the yeah. telescope. I highly recommend do a, do a search for Arecibo and on Slate, and you'll find a really great article about it. And yeah, it'll be. Uh, yeah, I wish I wish somehow Canada's robotic arms could fix this problem, but we just I don't think Canada can fix this. We for don't us. have an arm long enough to help. All right, uh let's move on. Um Nico, let's talk about the uh the Tonga Tonga 5 sample Tonga return. 5. <laughs> yeah, so China is attempting the most um, complex and uh, ambitious mission today with uh, the launch of Chang'e 5, um, and uh, which will which will will attempt to do something that have uh, haven't been done since 1970s, and that is to bring sample of the moon back to Earth. So two days ago, the 8.2 tons 
spacecraft was launched from uh, Wenchang Space Launch Center atop of uh, Long March 5 rocket. And according to a statement of uh, um, uh, Space Administration, the Chang'e 5 mission has several uh, objectives, the scientific and the space engineering. So uh, in the scientific field, the returned lunar sample will absolutely add new uh, knowledge to the lunar history. So uh, the mound uh, is thought to contain rocks that uh, formed relatively recently in geological perspective, so 1.2 billion years ago. And uh, the Apollo samples, for example, they are 3 billion years old. So the uh, Chang'e uh, 5 uh, samples uh, could yield the youngest rock, uh, rocks wow. uh, brought back to Earth. And uh, it shed the new light on the uh, recent phases of lunar geology. So, and in terms of engineering, space engineering perspective, uh, it will demonstrate and verify uh, technical plans and apparatus because the mission is, has several phases with uh, uh, really uh, with a lot of ca uh, challenges. So, uh, after separating from the rocket, the Chang'e uh, spacecraft will use its own thrusters to. Uh, uh, to make the five days uh, travel to the moon. Then the, the spacecraft, spacecraft will release the lander uh, that will land uh, uh, near the volcanic uh, uh, area, which is called Mons uh, Runka in the northwest region of the lunar near side. And then uh, the, uh, the lander will drill and scoop the uh, samples from the surface of the moon and pack it into the, uh, into the capsule. And the uh, ascent, uh, uh, ascent vehicle on the lander will launch it back to the orbit around the moon. Uh, ho hopefully, uh, it will have uh, two kilograms of uh, lunar material on the board. And finally, then the orbiting spacecraft will catch this capsule and return it to Earth, to uh, Mongolia. And the whole mission will take 23 days approximately. Wow, that's so quick. So that is... I did is... not realize that it was 23 days. Yeah, so, it, so we're going to have a sample back from the moon in three weeks. In December. Yeah. Yeah. That's yep. crazy. What? And no, the reason I mean, is like, also... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. The uh, reason for this short term is just the, uh, the spacecraft has solar panels and it can only uh, work for one lunar day, right. so two weeks. So there's only one, there's one yeah. chance. That's so cool. That. I'm so used yeah. to like it being like, oh, it'll take us a year to get there and then we'll be there for a year and it'll take a year to come back. So it's like... <laughs> delayed gratification there but this so, is so it's like yeah it and so one there's a couple now. of cool things that have been that have been going on one thing is that um the uh the data coming back from the mission is completely unencrypted and so people around the world have been receiving the data coming back from the spacecraft so we're seeing pictures coming back from the mission already and not released photographs from China. They're just people are, are decoding the transmissions and actually showing the pictures, which is pretty cool. Um, and then that also, nice. 
Um, NASA has has got an agreement to get access to some of the samples as well, or see the data on the samples as well. So, so I think, you know, it's definitely going to be more of a um, more of a collaboration than than the Chinese moon missions have been to this point. Although I've got to say, for the last mission, it's been, you know, they put a lot of information out directly. Mm-hmm. Um, Nika- the is also supporting the operation, so. I think the Europe will get some data as well. It's not clear. Oh, that'd they be great. Mentioned who will get what. And yeah. There's no information on that, but they said after the the sample is returned, they will uh, put some guidelines. Uh, right. How they share. So, so can you talk a little bit more about the? You, you mentioned that the place they're going is younger. So, what do you know about the select about the site that they're going to? So there's the volcanic uh, area, the, the mold, uh, that is uh, Monk Rumka. And I know that there, like, uh, there were already several missions to that area. Uh, but uh, th- this part of the area holds these special rocks that uh, are theoretically uh, younger compared to the old previous sample uh, results that we got so far from Apollo, from Luna, Soviets missions and um, this uh, 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 so that is pretty exciting for everybody to understand whether the the assumptions that we made before are really the ones the the real ones so that the geology is the geology is the way it is how we know it from previous samples so it may with the new samples we will have completely different story Right, right. And and uh, uh, the no, okay, that's, that's, that's no, 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 no. I think that's I think that's great. Um, so I, I mean, I guess to have uh, a surface that is say just like a billion, one point two billion years old compared to some of those older lunar regions that the Apollo astronauts had had brought rocks from. What do you think they might be able to learn from? from these rocks. Uh, what could they, please repeat the question. Yeah. Well, like what could they learn? What, you know, what kinds of information could you find out from younger, from these younger regions of the, of the moon? Um, I assume that what's basically what happens later to the, uh, this ma- uh, to the volcanic magma, and uh, uh, after the impacts uh, uh, of uh, est- like okay, I think the first part I cannot uh, reply uh, to this question completely. I need the help no, from others. No problem, Kimberly. Uh, so, what do you? Yeah, do- so I was going to say I think um, one of the main things we can learn is. Um, you know, differences in solar weathering across the moon's history. Um, and as Nika said, you know, how the rocks have been altered after this lunar magma phase, um, how cratering has changed and how that may have altered the surface chemistry. Um, and I think a uh, part of what will really help us, you know, uh, pin down this recent lunar evolution this, and, you know, what's happened in the past billion years or so is that I think, this mission is not just, you know, scooping up surface samples, which is, is sort of what's been done in the past, but they're also going to be drilling into the surface. They're going to be like drilling about two meters down and, and extracting rock cores 
from this area, which I don't think we've ever done off the earth before on mm -hmm. anywhere else but the earth just you know extracting rock cores from a surface so you're gonna see not just you know what rocks you can pick up on the surface and like the regolith which has been crushed to bits um but you can you'll be able to see like two meters of rock layer um, of rock deposits you know from the surface going downwards to you know really see the subsurface geology and like pin down some of the physical processes and how the rocks, you know, have changed, have all been altered, interacted with each other. If there's water there, yeah. what kind of chemistry is happening? Yeah. And yeah. I suppose I think, that's a pretty big deal in seeing what's under the regolith for the first time. Yeah. Um, I, I think my favorite part is the fact that we're going to get rock cores back. Yeah. I mean, yeah. samples are awesome, but rock cores, I'm not sure have been done before. Yeah, so I mean, the last time was 1976 with the Soviet Luna 24 mission. So it's been a long time since we've had a sample back from the and moon. the uniqueness is also that is like uh, uh, like autonomous uh, sample return, which has not really happened before because like during the Apollo mission. Well, like people collecting things, yeah, for example, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, drilling down is definitely first on the moon. Um, so, like a robotic mm -hmm. um, uh, sample mission. Yeah, very cool. I'm uh, I'm very excited to see uh, what happens with this. Thank you so much, Nika. All right, Alan, what do you got for us? Yeah, this is a different, changing scale now. Um, <laughs> Astronomers working on the Apogee uh, project, which is the Apache Point Observatory Galactic Evolution Experiment, part of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. Uh, they reckon they have identified the remains of a galaxy that the Milky Way collided with, interacted with, and eventually absorbed uh, 10 billion years ago. Wow. Some 5 billion years before the sun was formed, which is... It's amazing, you know, this, it's such a long time ago. Um, and it's kind of technically intact, right? Um, basically, they have, I mean, this isn't the first time we've identified stars from previous mergers, but um, those are generally in the outer regions uh, where they are, you know, you can see them. They, 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 they can be discerned from the general um, uh, background of, of the Milky Way. Whereas, this structure, which uh, they've decided to call it Heracles, after the Greek hero, mm -hmm. um, is mainly it's inside the, that that central bar bulge of the Milky Way. Wow! Um, and Apogee uh, collects spectra and um, astrometry using near infrared, so it's able to see through all that dust. And it was a ten-year project. Uh, analyzed half a million stars. Wow. I know, right? <laughs> so many. Um, and to like 10 to years to, yeah, to figure out project. this is just incredible. Mm. And they identified quite a large number of stars, which are got such a different chemical makeup from what we used to seeing in the Milky Way that they um, must have come from somewhere else. And um, I'm not clear what the modeling was to figure out how long ago the collision happened. Um, and they sort of hedging the... the, the, the Proper science talk, you know. Uh, we may have found may something have that found, could have, you know, yeah, possibly, yeah. 
on the other hand, they certainly love to publish. And I just think it's, it's quite amazing because this thing is making up a third of the Milky Way's mass. Wow. So it's big. This yeah. was a major event. Um, and from what I understand, um, you know, spiral galaxies generally have fairly quiet uh, early lives. Um, so that would make this quite unusual. Now, this was a major event a very long time ago um, in, our, in our galaxy's history. How, how long ago did it happen? Uh, 10 billion years. 10 billion years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that they were able to, to piece together the movements of these stars and collect it all into one big object that's mm-hmm. just not fully digested. Like, it's weird to me to think that even before the sun formed, this collision had mm-hmm. happened 5 billion years earlier than that, and yet it's still getting digested in a way that's that you can detect it i suppose it must be pretty stable by now it's just a part of the milky way now but they yeah. can you can still identify that there are different structures and it's still fairly um uh, homogenous it's, it's still on the on the illustrations that they give it's it's a definite sort of elliptical shaped clump um <laughs> t- taking up a large portion of that central bar of the milky way yeah, yeah. um so you mentioned that yeah. the chemistry of these stars is, you know, noticeably different from the Milky Way, mm. like Milky Way born stars. What about the chemistry is different? Is it like, are, are they missing certain elements or? Yeah, those are details I don't have, but I can only imagine that must be what it is. Um, <laughs> I mean, chemistry so is maybe the wrong word to use for a star. <laughs> you know, there's no chemicals in there. It's all, it's all elements. Um but yeah, it would it would be it would be different uh, from different population. Yeah, I guess we have to read that? the paper. I'm not sure what the what the. I mean, it, they say in the press release that they are. You know, we looked at the a few hundred had strikingly different chemical compositions and velocities. The stars are so different that they could only have come from another galaxy. Mm. But I don't. I'll know. have to follow up on that. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but I'm not sure what the what the different chemistry is. Yeah, it's it's really that's really fascinating, especially that it took place so when the Milky Way was so young. I mean, yeah, that I mean, the universe was young then. It was... The universe was young, right? <laughs> yeah. It's only a couple billion years after the universe was formed, and the Milky Way couldn't have been more than a billion or two billion years old at the time. I, I was mm-hmm. mentioning this be- before the show that there's that there was this study that came out a couple of weeks ago as well that that showed off all of the different galaxy mergers that made up the Milky Way that they were able to track all the globular clusters globular clusters um, and be able to to piece them back to each all of the in- individual mergers because each one essentially you know if you've got a bunch that are that are made of the same stuff and they're following a very similar orbit they came from a galaxy. And they were able to figure out, you know, these two galaxies collided together and those came together to make a bigger one and a bigger one. But it is amazing that you get this beautiful grand spiral design as the final outcome. And yet we know that when Andromeda and the Milky Way come together, we're going to get a giant ball of, of, of red stars. So, like, it's got to be the right size collisions to get you just the perfect nice spiral shape before you get the mess super fascinating very interesting all right well we're going to shift over to the interview portion of the show but before we do i'm going to bid my co-hosts uh adieu because they uh 
they don't have to stick around for this part. So Alan, you're on my screen. Uh, tell us what you're working on and where people can find out more. So I'm hoping to resume finally the third season of the Urban Astronomer podcast. Uh, next episode will be an interview with an astronomer currently in the Netherlands, um, South African born. Uh, and you can get to urban-astronomer.com for the subscribe links and to see show notes. Fantastic. Uh, Nika. Yeah. So I am uh, currently working with a, a new space network in Germany called Gaia aerospace and they have like uh any several... relation to the mission nope okay all right <laughs> just a coincidence that's the same name and uh they do a lot of networking events of course but they have also their own projects and one of these projects i mentioned i think last time that they're working on this uh, spaceport and uh on the um, yeah on the launcher so that's currently what I'm doing. And uh, if there are any online events, I will post it in Twitter for sure. That and you great. guys have my Twitter. Kimberly, apart from uh, reminiscing about the uh, Arecibo, what have, you, uh, what have you been working on? Oh, does it leave time for anything else? I didn't <laughs> no, realize. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been getting frantically getting ready for the AGU fall meeting, which starts up next week. Um, There'll soon be a deluge of Earth and space science news. But it's going to be like webs. all it's online, right? All online, okay. all virtual for three weeks. Um, so there's so much science. Oh, my gosh. Um, <sighs> and I have a couple stories I've already written and a couple more that are already in the works. So keep an eye out for stuff from me about Uranus and ocean moons and about exoplanets and mantle dynamics and about drought Mm -hmm. uh, and all that'll be on eos.org and on Twitter. Fantastic. Astro Kim Cartier. Excellent. All right. Uh, for those of you who are listening right now, I've got an interview with uh, Wallace Arthur, author of The Biological Universe. We're going to be talking about life in the universe uh, tomorrow at 8 a.m. on my YouTube channel. Of course, another open space coming up on, on Monday. Um, lots of other good stuff happening on Universe Today. Um, I'm pleased to announce that uh, that Alan Boyle, my one of my mentors in the space uh journalism industry has uh taken up the mantle and written and started writing for universe today again so we got he he covered changa five for us on universe today and i'm sure we're going to be seeing more from him uh in the future so uh i'm super excited so universe today has got even more great writers and more uh great material coming out all the time buckle up all right um all right i'm gonna say goodbye so i'm gonna put everybody back on the on the screen there. Uh, there we all are. So I'm going to say goodbye to everybody. Thanks, guys, for joining us. Uh, Nika, Alan, go to bed. Kim, I guess it's you're in the almost bedtime for you too. So everybody go to bed. Almost 9 o'clock. It's yeah. almost bedtime. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll keep going from here. And uh, But thank you for, uh, for joining me this week. Great. Thank you. Bye. All right. Back to me. Let me queue up my interview. Uh, all right, here we go. Wow, I'm wearing like the same outfit. Okay, perfect. It's as if I recorded earlier today, which I didn't. Okay, here we go. All right, uh, thanks everybody, and uh, enjoy the interview. It's a good one, so don't just don't leave.
All right, joining me this week on the Weekly Space Hangout is Olivier Wittas from the European Space Agency. Uh, Olivier, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Very, very nice to meet you. So the question I always like to ask people is, is who are you and, and what do you do? So I am uh, Olivier Vitas. Uh, I'm working at the European Space Agency in Estec in the Netherlands, not far from uh, from Amsterdam. And I am the project scientist of the JUICE mission. So JUICE is for Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer due to launch in 2022. I think we'll talk about that uh, later. And as project scientist, I am responsible for the scientific aspects of the mission. And uh, yes, I'm working with the scientists to make sure that uh, the mission will be a success and that in 10, 15 years from now, we'll have great uh, discoveries, great images, etc. Um, so, I mean, it's funny. People are very familiar with the Europa Clipper, and and yet I always try to match the two together. I talk about the Europa Clipper and I also talk about JUICE at the same time as a whole separate mission that's going to be examining not only Europa but other Jovian moons. So can you talk a bit about what the JUICE mission is going to be doing? Yes, so the JUICE mission is, a, I think it's a fantastic mission. It's a big mission in ESA, so one of the biggest uh, budget for for a given mission. And it, it's a broad and interdisciplinary scientific mission. So we are not only focused on one aspect, like, like sometimes in, in, in other missions. So because when we go to Jupiter, it's not very often, as you can imagine. So when we go there, we, you, we try to do the maximum. So the goal is really to explore the, the Jupiter system as a whole. And of course, uh, our idea is to focus on the three icy moons, which are uh, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, uh, um, because we are very interested in those moons because we have good reason to believe that there is a lot of uh, liquid water inside the moon. It can be a bit uh, strange to think about that, that when you see the moon, it's uh, ice crust. And inside uh, the moon, we have maybe more liquid water than on Earth. So it's very fascinating because of uh, habitability, life, etc. So we are going to study those three moons with a particular focus on Ganymede. That's our main target, the biggest moon in the solar system. And we are because uh, we are we will be around Jupiter for for many many years. We are also going to study the giant planets, so the atmosphere. Uh, the magnetosphere from far away. So really the idea is to study the whole system with a particular emphasis on the three icy moons to understand whether uh, they could be habitable place around a gas giant. So so let's let's sort of deal with these worlds one at a time because again, I think everybody is is fairly familiar with how exciting Europa is. But let's talk about Ganymede. Why is Ganymede such an interesting world and, and a target for JUICE. Yeah, so it's true that in the Jupiter environment uh, and the Jupiter system, Europa is one of the most interesting target uh, because when we, uh, we, studied the, we started to study the liquid ocean, the, the properties of this uh, liquid water in Europa is very, maybe very close to the Earth's uh, ocean. So that's why Europa is a very interesting target because it offers the most exciting target for astrobiology. 
And Ganymede is less known, of course, because Europa is really the most interesting target there. But uh, what we learned as well is that there is also a lot of liquid water inside Ganymede. So that makes also uh, an, an interesting uh, moon in the, in the Jupiter system. It's the biggest moon of Jupiter and the biggest moon of the solar system. So it's a kind of mini planet. <laughs> yeah. So it's also quite interesting in that sense. And uh, there is a very interesting aspect with Ganymede is that uh, there is an internal magnetic field, which is not the case at Europa. Right. So if we think about uh, rocky bodies like uh, Earth, so the, the terrestrial planet, there are only three uh, uh, bodies in the solar system, three rocky bodies with magnetic field. So the Earth, and we are happy. To, uh, that there is a magnetic field that can protect us from uh, from the uh, solar activity. There is Mercury, and there is Ganymede. Hmm. So it, it it makes a very interesting uh, moon because uh, a big moon, mini planet with an ocean uh, inside, plus a magnetic field. So that makes a very interesting target, and we decided uh, in Europe with the European Community and the European Space Agency that it should be our main uh, main target, and. Uh, so f from the scientific point of view, as I said, it's a very exciting target. Also, from the technical point of view, it was e easier for us in Europe to focus on Ganymede because Europa, even if it's very interesting, unfortunately, Europa is a little bit too close from Jupiter. Mm -hmm. And uh, that means in terms of radiation environment, Europa is much more complicated to explore for a spacecraft. And so uh, because, uh, yeah. it, it, it's kind of interesting, right, that, that Ganymede has an internal magnetosphere like the Earth. Yep. How, and so that would be more protective, but it's also farther away from Jupiter. And so it's experiencing less of the trapped radiation from Jupiter. So it, it seems like a potentially more habitable world than, say, Europa might be. Exactly. So that's why for us, it's a very interesting target, because sometimes we hear that uh, Europa is more interesting. So uh, Europa Clipper is maybe going to a more interesting target. So why do you go with Juice to, uh, to Ganymede? But in fact, as I explained, I think it's a very interesting uh, place. And maybe we will get some surprises from, uh, from Ganymede. Who knows? The main difference um, is, of course, the distance to the giant planet. That's why uh, Europa being closer to Jupiter experiences more gravitational pull and more heat inside. So that's why it's a more active moon. Mm -hmm. Ganymede is a bit further away, so much less active. So that's why, in principle, it's less interesting for astrobiology. But because of the ocean, because of the radiation environment and the internal mag uh, magnetic field, that makes, uh, to me, a very interesting place to, to explore. Um you know, you talk about the fact that it has less tidal heating, less than than Europa. What do you think, you know, if, if Europa, say, has this liquid ocean under 100 kilometers of, of, of ice, what do you think that the structure of Ganymede is going to be like? So the, the, the internal structure of a moon or a planet, it's always very complicated to study because we, we don't go inside. So it's always a very complicated question. What we think of Ganymede is that uh, there is um, an iron core which generates the, the internal magnetic field. 
that's in the middle, uh, th that's in the center of the moon. Then on the external side, we have the icy crust, which can be uh, maybe 40 or 50 or even more uh, kilometer, uh, 40 or 50 kilometers thick that we don't know. We are going to, to study that in detail. And in between the crust and the iron, there is uh, different uh, ice layers because we call them icy moon because they are mainly made of ice. And sandwiched somewhere between some ice layers, there is this uh, liquid water ocean. So this is more or less what we think about the internal structure. And with the, all the, the data from Jews that we are going to get in uh, 10, 15 years from now, we are going to, for sure, to understand better the structure. So for example, is our ID correct? So did the different layers inside the moon? And then uh, what are the different uh, sizes? For example, how, how deep is the, the ocean? How deep is the, how big is the liquid core, et cetera, et cetera. So that we are going to get more information with the data. But we, we have the overall big picture, but we are missing all the, the details. Yeah. So to figure out those details, what instruments will JUICE be bringing to the system to be able to study? Anything like, you know, any new tools in the toolkit? Yes, yeah, so we have, uh, so because as I said, we don't go there very often when we we uh, plan, a, plan a project or a mission to go to Jupiter and the icy moons, we put as much as possible of instrument to make sure that we are going to get the most science out of it. And we have, uh, with JUICE, I think we are, we are well equipped. There will be uh, 10 instruments. So four remote sensing, so one camera and then different instruments to use in different wavelengths, like a visible infrared, UV, and a millimeter wavelength, just to understand the composition of the surface and to take uh, images to understand the geology and, uh, and uh, the world there. Then we have three geophysics instruments, a laser altimeter, a radar, and the radio science to probe the gravity of the moons. And three in-situ measurements, uh, uh, instrument to measure... Um, uh, the, the environment, so the energetic particles uh, around the moon and the magnetic field and electric field. So we, we really cover uh, all the basic principle uh, measurement when we, uh, when we prepare a planetary mission uh, because we want to make sure we understand everything. So from remote sensing, geophysics, and in situ. So then after studying Ganymede, you'll study Callisto. What maybe is different? What, you know, what Differences are you expecting from Callisto compared to Ganymede and Europa? Yes, yeah, so Callisto, uh, just from the mission design point of view, we are going to have uh, something like between 12 and 20 flybys of Callisto. That's great. So every time we do a flyby, we get uh, we get a lot of data. So, But it's it will not be like Ganymede. Ganymede, at the end of the mission, will orbit Ganymede, so we'll completely map Ganymede. Callisto, it will be a few flybys, and Europa only a, a two flyby. So just to give you the, the right. difference between the three moons, we are not going to get the same amount of information for the three moons. So a little bit of information on Europa, an interesting set of information for Callisto and a complete set for, for Ganymede. And for Callisto, uh, so Callisto is much further away uh, from Jupiter compared to Ganymede. So that's the fourth uh, uh, ice, uh, Galilean moon. So in terms of radiation, it's much further away, much further away in terms of uh, gravitational uh, pull or tidal uh, heating. So what does that mean? 
is that the uh, unlike the other moons, uh, Callisto, it's uh, we can say it's relatively dead from the geological point of view. Right. It did not evolve much over the last uh, four billion years. And when you see the surface, you understand exactly what it is because you see a number of craters. It's uh, heavily cratered, very similarly to our own moon. So that means the surface is very old because mm -hmm. the more craters you see, the more old is, is the, the older is the surface. So that means it's a dead body. So it's quite interesting to compare uh, this uh, dead but big body. It's more or less the same size as Ganymede. It will be very interesting to compare that with Ganymede, which is more uh, an evolving uh, moon, comparing to Europa, which is even more active with the astrobiology uh, perspective, and even to compare with Io, which is a completely active moon mm -hmm. with uh, volcanic activity on the, on the surface. But still, even if we think it's a dead body, we have also some uh, reason to believe that uh, there is possibly an internal subsurface ocean also inside Callisto. Some data from the NASA uh, Galileo mission uh, 20 years ago revealed that uh, it's possible. The data is not uh, very, very clear. So it will be very interesting for with Juice to, to, to confirm or not the presence of liquid water inside Callisto. And if there is liquid water inside Callisto, how is it possible? Right, right. Uh... So that's uh, why it's very interesting also to study Callisto. I, I mean, I guess it is is interesting with Europa and Ganymede. The history is is erased, while the with Callisto, the history remains longer. And so you can kind of hope that that what you see happening over on Callisto probably happened on Europa and Ganymede, in the same way that we look at the Moon as a way to understand the Earth, even though the Earth has wiped away all of its craters. Um, so yeah, not correct. In fact, uh, the the yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the so connection was less good. Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, sorry. So let's just talk about now the uh, like the launch date. So when does when do you launch? Whoop! Did I lose you there? When when does the rocket launch? And how long so will it the, take to fly out there? So we have a, a launch window in uh, June two thousand twenty two. So that's the, our baseline. We, uh, we work for, to meet uh, this deadline. We have a one-week uh, launch window. And if we manage to launch on time, it will take seven and a half years to oh, reach Jupiter. So far. Because Juice is, a, yeah, Juice is a big spacecraft, so five tons. And we use a very powerful rocket, which is Ion 5, but not powerful enough to send us directly to, uh, to Jupiter. So, because the direct route, direct route with a, a very powerful launcher will take three years, something like that. Uh, with our current mission design, it will take seven and a half years. So, be, uh, rather than going directly to Jupiter, there will be a three orbit around the sun when there will be gravity assist flyby of the Earth, Mars, and Venus to get the necessary uh, energy to reach Jupiter. And then we arrive at the end of 2029. So we have to be patient. Right, right, right. Um, and how long will, will it, do you expect to be in the system before you wrap it up? So then once we are at Jupiter, we'll orbit Jupiter for two and a half years, something like that. So we will orbit Jupiter. We'll make the flybys of the three moons. 
And then two and a half years later, we'll orbit Ganymede for something like uh, almost a year. And once we orbit Ganymede, we are there, we cannot escape anymore. And right. then we have no fuel or where the mission is not working anymore. At the end, we'll eventually uh, impact uh, Ganymede. So all in all, the mission is, uh, is baseline to last something like four years in the Jupiter system, including one around Ganymede. So that's the baseline. We will see how it works. If it works well, if the spacecraft is performing well, if we have enough fuel, uh, then we might think to extend the mission. But we will see when mm -hmm, once mm -hmm. we, we are there. Well, is it powered by solar or are you using an RTG as well? Yeah, in uh, in Europe uh, we we have to use solar panels. Right. Uh, we cannot use RTG, so we have a huge uh, solar panels, eighty-five uh, square meter. If you find images on the web, you see a special shape. It's uh, that makes the the design and the image of the spacecraft quite uh, interesting. Yeah, well, I know with Juno, Juno for a while there was the only solar powered yep. um, spacecraft out there, and I think you get something like one ninth. The power? I forget the amount, or is it one twenty fifth? Anyway, like a yeah, fraction. Yeah, one twenty fifth. One twenty fifth the power of what you get at Earth. Yeah. So your solar panels have to be twenty five yeah. times as big yeah. <laughs> to be able to to deliver the same kind of power, which is very big solar panels. Which is why the spacecraft, yeah, as you a, say, yeah. yeah, that's a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Well, fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Um, I'm sure everybody's going to be seeing a lot more information over the coming years as as we lead up to the launch, and then we wait and wait and wait, and then we will actually see the uh, the the arrival at Jupiter, which is going to be really exciting. So, again, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for your interest and uh, follow the mission. We will. We will. Uh, from the European Space Agency's website, I know there's a lot of great information there. Yeah, and Twitter as well. So Perfect. Every, there are many possibilities. All Thank right. Well, good much. luck. Good luck with everything. I hope there's no delays and uh, hurry Thank to the you. launch pad. Thank you. Thanks. Perfect. Bye-bye.